Well, good morning. I want to welcome everybody, everybody here, everybody online. Uh, as you probably figured out, this is the third day of Advent, and of course, we're celebrating joy. And um, I'll be honest with you, I was excited about the, this topic uh, for Advent this year. Um, so I had this preconceived notion um, of what I was going to do when I had this topic of joy, and the... Um, I wanted to address the psalm this way, and I look at kind of like there's three levels of experience, right? There's fun, happiness, and joy. Um, fun is that thing that is fun, but it can have negative consequences. Um, I have a number of broken bones I can attribute to having fun. Um, and happiness is kind of a second level it's that idea of uh, an emotional state characterized by feelings of satisfaction, contentment, and fulfillment, right? That's that sort of, I feel good about myself kind of thing, right? And then finally, there's joy, which is a deeper, more spiritual feeling that is really beyond circumstance. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to compare the idea of biblical joy against what we call happiness in 21st century America. Uh, because I thought that is really going to be the point of this message. And the, um, I was kind of surprised because uh, what Scripture shares about happiness um, and joy is really different than what we think about here today. Um, so the issue that I ran into when I was ready for this thing is I... I read through the psalm, and it has both joy and happiness in the psalm. And that happens every now and then. Theology trumps opinion, and you realize you got it wrong. You didn't understand it the way God intended it to be. And so um, I was trying to figure out how to deal with this. Um, you know, I was a bit confused because those two things showed up together. And so this learned senior pastor that I know who recently turned old and who's on vacation suggested that I do a study into the uh, nature of what the Hebrews thought about joy and happiness. And so I studied into that, and there's a lot of really interesting things that came along with that. And the other thing I found that was really interesting was that there's some really interesting parallels between the Jewish concept of joy and happiness and the American ideas that were placed at Thomas Jefferson in the, the uh, Declaration of Independence. Now, I know, I was surprised too. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing what happens when you open up your mind and all these things you didn't know enter. Um, it's, um, and, and I've told you before, that's the part I love most about preparing for messages is how much it grows me. Uh, because I have to spend a lot of time, you know, I, the average message takes 10 or 12 hours to put together. I know it's like 20 minutes and you won't remember it after Wednesday, but we have to invest, you know, a lot to try to get what that message is saying, even though, you know, Psalm 126 is only six verses. Uh, but it's, to me, I really enjoy it. So anyway, if you recall from your history classes, Thomas Jefferson began the Declaration of Independence by asserting that everyone had certain inalienable rights. Among these were life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, inalienable rights are rights that are personal rights that belong to an individual. They're not bestowed by any law, custom, or belief, and they cannot be taken away or transferred. They're wholly yours. 
Um, they're, in a sense, God-given rights. Um, now, of course, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, but he recognized the importance of God. Um, and so it's an important distinction because happiness is not the right, but the pursuit of happiness is the right. Whether you be happy or not is up to you, but you have a right to pursue it, right? You can choose to be unhappy. I've met people like that. They look like they were weaned on a pickle. And the, that's just the way they live. But we have a choice. We have a right to pursue happiness. Um, now, I want to jump forward, a big jump here to the 1940s. And there is this guy named Maslow. Now, the, um, Maslow was um, kind of, if, if, if you've taken any leadership or management class, you know who Maslow is. He came out with this paper where we talk about the hierarchy of needs. Right, and he was um, a, a post-America influential psychologist, um, and he wrote this paper called "A Theory of Human Motivation," which he proposed that all humans are subject to this hierarchy of needs. Um, and the part that's really interesting about it is this hierarchy of needs roughly parallels what Thomas Jefferson said about our inalienable rights. Right. So at the bottom of Maslow's list of our physiological needs and safety needs a human's basic biological necessities and need for security compared to Jefferson's right to life. At the next level was Maslow's hierarchy was love and belonging and esteem that roughly the combination equates to the concept of human liberty. Um, that is namely the need to feel comfortable and respected, free to be oneself and free to be fear of rejection or denigration. And then finally at the top of Maslow's hierarchy was self-actualization, which he proposed was the ultimate of self-fulfillment, right? First, by achieving all the other items on the list, and then by realizing one's highest potential and finding true contentment. That was Maslow's theory. So now it sounds a lot like this pursuit of happiness um, would certainly be this uh, equivalent to this idea of self-actualization. Um, and certainly the pursuit of happiness, it's this lifelong journey that we're always adjusting to, um, evaluating what's happening, is this working for me, am I going the direction I want to go, all those sorts of things. But that's where it gets really kind of interesting, because although Maslow was born Jewish, he was an avowed atheist, um, and he never gave much attention to God in his writings. He never attributed anything to religion. Um, and God and religion were completely absent from his hierarchy. But toward the end of his life, Maslow seemed to have had an epiphany. And in the final list, uh, the final need to his list, he added an ultimate goal for human, every human being. And this he defined as self-transcendence. What does that mean? It means setting goals that transcends one's human limitations and having... Uh, aspirations that are altruistic and spiritual. It's like all of a sudden Maslow grew up to his Jewish roots and got to understand where joy and happiness are really found. It's not in self-actualization. It's not in me getting everything for me. It's beyond that. It's bigger than that. Um, and so the... Um, now, that's something Jewish people have understood for a long time, and, and frankly, I think many Americans need to relearn. Um, where do you find that joy and happiness? Um, long before the modern era, 
Judaism stressed happiness as an important ideal. But the difference between Judaism's happiness as defined by the Torah and the Talmud and Western civilization's understanding of happiness is precisely the distinction that Maslow learned when he went from self-actualization to self-transcendence. That fact that you have to be beyond yourself to find true happiness and joy. Um, Self-actualization is purely ego-driven, right? It's utterly self-contained. It's filled with selfishness, envy, personal ambition at the cost of others. Even, it's amazing, when you look at it, even things that you do for others, it's the question of why you do it that matters. If you're doing it for you, then it's for you, regardless of how good it makes the other person feel. Self-transcendence is beyond that. You do something beyond yourself because it's the right thing to do. All right, so um, self-actualization, though, is the perfect aspiration for a humanist. For an atheist humanist, that is the mantra, right? It's all about me. Um, and unfortunately, that's where many Americans are today. It's what, what's in it for me? Is it good for me? But when happiness is defined as self-transcendence, as a pursuit of goals beyond personal gratification, it extends well beyond that. So we'll read in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, he shows his works done in gentleness that wisdom brings. But if you live in bitter jealousy and selfishness in your heart, do not boast and tell against the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. From where there is jealousy and selfishness, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and not hypocritical. Wow. Right? So the verses tell us that if you're living for yourself and defining happiness as your happiness, then you are living an earthy and unspiritual life to the point of being demonic. Ouch. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's kind of uncomfortable, right? And, and that kind of describes, again, the way America lives today, right? If it feels good, do it, right? If it's okay for me, it's okay for me. My dad used to say, if it feels good, uh, and that's the only motivator, it's probably illegal, immoral, or impractical in the long run. Um, <laughs> so, but if you're living this transcendent happiness, God's wisdom is with you, given from heaven, then you are first pure, then peaceable, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and not hypocritical. Wow, that would be amazing if someone said that of me. If they said, wow, this guy clearly carries his fruits. I mean, and granted, I'm not saying I arrived by any stretch. Most of you know me that I haven't arrived. But you see the goal. You see that idea of living beyond. And Jewish people had that. And that's what the Old Testament is. And the I know this kind of sounds like an odd rabbit hole we went down, but you're going to see this makes sense when we look at what's in this psalm, um, because that's where the Jewish people are. So the question I want to ask you today is, which do you want to be? Do you want to be self-actualized, or do you want to be self-transcendent? Um, and again, it's a big word, but it's a great thought, right? The idea of being beyond yourself, that's what self-transcendent means. 
So do you want to live your life for you or something bigger than that? And I think in this psalm, we're going to see that living in peace of joy of God in your heart will allow you to live beyond yourself even when the worst things are happening in your life. And that's really the strength that we get from living in the joy and happiness of the Lord is the fact that we can live above our circumstances, right? Because we know there is more to that than circumstances, to our current way we're living. All right, so Psalm 126, Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the well-being of Zion, we thought we were dreaming. At that time, we laughed loudly and shouted for joy. At that time, the nation said, the Lord has accomplished great things for these people. The Lord did indeed accomplish great things for us. We were happy. O Lord, restore our well-being, just as the streams in the arid south are replenished. Those who shed tears as they plant will shout for joy when they reap the harvest. The one who weeps as he walks along, carries his bag of seed, will certainly come in with a shout of joy carrying his sheaves of grain. So some quick context. The word ascent, we remember Psalm of Ascents, um, literally means the process of climbing up or going upstairs or steps. And we've talked about this a few times in other messages, but the book of Ezra talks about from the, the exiles returning to Jerusalem, they had to climb up. If you're familiar, Jerusalem is on a hill. So in order to get to the Temple Mount, you have to go up a hill. So they had these psalms of ascents that they would sing as they were going up the hill. Um, and uh, we saw that with, um, in the book of Ezra, uh, the exiles returning from captivity in Babylon are repeatedly said to go up to Jerusalem. And Ezra's own journey in Ezra 7-9 talks about uh, the word that they used to go up or to ascent. Um, and indeed, Jewish history is full of exile and return. If you're at all familiar with the Jewish history, they have been run over by virtually everyone. Um, the Ottomans, the Greeks, the Romans, um, all the stuff that happened. I mean, their, their history is one of constant exile and return. Um, and indeed, the tensions we are seeing in the Middle East today are because of that return process of them coming back to what was then Palestine and is now the nation of Israel. Um, so this psalm is a combination of past, present, and future reference to God and that persistence of joy and happiness. All right, so verses 1 through 3 again. <clears throat> when the Lord restored the well-being of Zion, we thought we were dreaming. At that time, we laughed loudly and shouted for joy. At that time, the nation said, the Lord has accomplished great things for these people. The Lord did indeed accomplish great things for us. We were happy. Now, I said that history of Israel is full of restoration, but not without hardship. Um, Israel spent 400 years in captivity in Egypt until Moses led him out to the promised land, right? Recall the activities that surrounded the people during the release, right? Think about, imagine going through that history and seeing the 10 plagues, watching the ocean part, water coming from rocks, food down from heaven. Um, they absolutely had to think they were dreaming. This is a mad. I mean, 400 years we've prayed to leave, and now we're not only are we leaving, but we're leaving under these amazing supernatural effects. I mean, they had to think this was a dream. And yet it wasn't without hardship. Right? They went through a lot to get there, all the 40 years in the desert and all that sort of stuff. 
Israel spent 70 years in exile in Babylon before some of the Hebrews returned to Jerusalem after their exile. Um, King Cyrus of Persia allowed Ezra to not only return to Jerusalem, a destroyed city, but also provided the resources to do it. He sent them with letters and said, hey, guys in, you know, the guys in uh, Tyre provide them with, with trees and supplied it. They had to sound like a dream. You're letting me return to my city that's been destroyed and rebuild it. It had to sound like they were dreaming. But it was not without hardship. Right? We read how they, they literally had their tools in one hand and their swords in the other because of what the challenges they were going through rebuilding the city. They had to deal with internal conflict because people had married within the, the tribes of other people, non-Jewish people that caused conflict. They had the, the foreigners that were brought in. The, one of the traits of the Babylonians is that they would take the people that lived there out and put new people in and replace them so that they would lose their culture. So they had to deal with that. So they had all of this that they had to deal with. Um, but they talk about joy this happiness that they had, that they were back in Jerusalem and they were rebuilding the city. Uh, the book of Ezra is great about that. And this is where that idea of Jewish joy and happiness comes from, that recognition that through everything that's going on in your life, God is with you. You are not alone. And what's their response to God's restoration of his people? There is loud laughter and joy and singing. Can you imagine how frustrating that had to be to the people that were trying to get on Ezra and Nehemiah about building the city while they're busy with a sword in one hand and tools in the other, and they're singing? That really had to make the outsiders mad. You know? I can understand why these guys are so happy. We're making their life miserable, and yet they seem to be having a great time with it. All right. Again, they had to, the outsiders had to be perplexed about seeing the great things that God had done for his people, but they recognized it was their God who was doing it. Recall the story of Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? So if you remember, they go through this whole process. One of um, Nebuchadnezzar's advisors says, hey, you know, you should build this big statue of yourself and everybody should worship. And um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, yeah, sorry, we can't do that. That's not what we do. We have the one God that we worship, and that's the only one we're going to worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar kind of gets forced into making this, this um, uh, whatever law that if you don't do it, we're going to kill you. And so they said, okay, well, that's your choice. But, and so, of course, he throws them in the furnace, and they don't burn up. And um, the, um, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the power of the truly most high God. Um, and it's great in Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, it says, How great are your signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, and his authority continues from one generation to the next. How true. The eternal God is just that, eternal. He is in charge always. Um, and so we see that in, in Psalm 126. God's people agree, and they say, the Lord indeed accomplished great things for us. We are happy. And that's where my, my brain is. Because our whole concept of happiness is so different in the world today than it was for them. Their happiness was because they knew they were walking alongside the Lord, and that regardless of their circumstances, God was 
there. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So God hears their prayers and responded. And you can just see them laughing and singing joyously at watching all the things God has done. One of my favorite stories uh, in the Bible has to do with Abraham and Sarah. Now, as you recall, at the time, it was Abram and Sarah, and they're old. I mean, like, even older than us old. And um, God tells them they're going to have a kid. And they're like, what's the first thing they do? They laugh. They're like, I'm 100. I'm going to have a kid. And I'm thinking to themselves, he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to have a teenager, 115. That sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> but, but they laugh. You know, and in fact, it's interesting because Isaac literally means the son of laughter. You know, here they are, these people that were beyond old, and they were going to have the child that they had been promised, and that child would become this giant kingdom. When I was, uh, um, I used to get a, this thing, probably some of you, I know some older folks know what I'm talking about, that there's this book called The Reader's Digest. Um, yeah, right. It was like, yeah, it was like, hey, Mary. And in it, there was all these like anecdotal type stuff. But one of my favorite ones, there was a section called Laughter is the Best Medicine. And it was always just cute little stories, you know, ones you could tell your grandkids. And, the, it, and it was funny. You know, it was just laughter. It made you feel good. You know, and it's funny because I think to myself how much times laughter and joy in the time of struggle is like a tonic. Right? It's like what lifts you back up. I can honestly say there are days I've had such a crap of a day, I'll go home and find something funny to watch on TV. Totally, you know, just funny. Just to make you laugh. Something that's silly. Because you just want to unload all the garbage of the day. Right? Laughter is like a, you know, it's like good for you. Joy and singing. And, and you guys know I, I love to sing. I'm terrible at it, but I love to sing. And the, um, I, I get so much out of singing. And this time of the year to me is, I mean, there's so many great songs that we sing this time of year. You know, there's, um, there's a Hallelujah Christmas, Mary Did You Know. I mean, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, I cry a lot this time of year because it's, these things, it's, it's, it's like you get to that point this time of year where you can shed all the crap that's going on around you as being insignificant and you, and you, get, to, you get to find time for things that matter. You know, it, it's, it's like you realize that all this other stuff isn't that important, um, that you can rest in this time. Um, and, I, you know, it's, I would love to say that happens year-round. It doesn't. You know, you get caught up in the noise again and stuff like that. But this time of year is just, I spend a lot of quiet time. I, um, it just, it's just a great time of the year. Um, all right, I, trig I digress here. So, um, so the... God brings joy and happiness in times of hardship because we know that God has our back and he'll see us through whatever we're going through. And when things were going poorly for the Jews, the prophet Isaiah reminds them of this um, in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. And that's kind of where that song came from that, that Deborah sang, and we're going to sing again. Um, and I hope you had time to listen to the words. Uh, to me, it's, it's the most amazing song. Um, and uh, it, again, it comes out of Psalm, or Isaiah 61, rather, um, Deborah's so nice to me. I, I'm like, Deborah, can you sing this song for me? And she's like, oh yeah, we'll do that. And she's, she's so nice. Uh, <laughs> a beautiful singer, too. That's, that's a plus. The, uh, anyway, I digress. The, uh, 
All right, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim, and good, new, give, proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, sorry, and the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They'll renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I was afraid this was going to happen. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> Those verses, it's just amazing, right? I mean, it's just, he rebuilds this. I mean, this, this I mean, the, the bind up the brokenhearted, right? You can just see, you know, if you ever had a, you know, broken bone, there's a comfort in getting it wrapped up and taken care of. And it's not that it stops hurting, but there's, there's comfort in it. There's, 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 you're, you're okay. You know, that he's, you know, releasing the captives, the darkness, been trapped in something in your life that God gives you freedom from. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's just amazing, you know. And then the crown of beauty instead of ashes. You know, the, the, the mourning in the Old Testament was sackcloth and ashes. And, you know, and you're going to shed that. You're going to shed that sackcloth and ashes. Um, and you're going to get, instead, this crown of beauty. Yeah, it's just amazing. So, and as you know, the book of Isaiah contains many prophetic verses about the coming of the Savior. Right? Nearly 800 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet um, Isaiah foretells about the child who will redeem mankind and bring about eternal joy and happiness to mankind. Right? And it's on that promise that the Jews in times of trouble leaned on. Right? They knew that time was coming. Right? Centuries of Christian martyrs also hung on to that promise, suffering unspeakably for their belief, knowing that their time on earth is but brief compared to time in heaven. It's interesting, I read a quote, I can't remember exactly, but it was the idea that literally your life on earth is like a whisper compared to your time in heaven before the Almighty. And while this seems like a long time here, it's going to seem like nothing when you're on the other side. And it's interesting, if you read a book like Martyr's Mirror, where it talks about the suffering, and the Brethren Church was certainly knows a lot about suffering, they would talk about these people would literally go to their death singing, knowing where they were going, knowing the joy and happiness that they were headed for. It's amazing. And again, that promise extends us today. Whatever God, whatever you're going through, God can renew us. He can bind our broken hearts, free us from our prisons, comfort us as we mourn, and exchange our ashes and sackcloth for crowns of beauty. So that's where the last three verses of this psalm takes us. 126 verses 4 to 6. O Lord, restore our well-being just as streams in the arid south are replenished. 
Those who, said shed, those who shed tears as they plant will shout for joy when they reap the harvest. The one who weeps as he walks along carrying his bag of seed will certainly come in with a shout of joy carrying his sheaves of grain. What amazing promise. Basically, it says, God, you did it once, you'll do it again. You made us live, you'll keep us living again. You got me through this, you'll get me through the next thing. One of the things I tell people about faith, faith is this muscle that we have to exercise. And as I've got, I've seen God work in my life so many times, I don't have to even think about it anymore. I'm like, I know you got this. Yeah, it's probably going to hurt, but that's okay, you got this. You know, and that, that there's a, that's that joy and happiness. Is that that peace in your life, knowing God's got this. You know, yeah, it's probably going to hurt, but that's okay. Um, and as dry riverbeds are suddenly filled with water at the melting of the snow, so come fill our hearts, right? As the streams in the south fill the rivers. What a promise, right? And you can take that for certain. Consider it a scriptural proverb. God's got this. You'll be there. Um, it's interesting. I have a, an acquaintance at work who's Mormon, and the... Um, we get into this discussion because my God is unchanging. I don't have to worry about him changing his mind. His God can change his mind. Um, and the elders of the church are responsible for keeping track of God's current position. And I'm thinking, that's a terrible way to live. <laughs> I'm glad my God told me what's going to happen and he's not changing his mind. Um, so again, I, I know I can count on God regardless because his word is permanent, it's immutable, it's not going to change. All right, so when we're dealing with difficult times, when darkness fills our days, remember that the brighter days are yet to come. Um, and in those trials, gods will fill our hearts with living water, with hearts within the soul. If you don't spend time for prayer and meditation to let that living water flow in you, I really encourage you to do that, um, especially when things are difficult. And not so much to pray this laundry. I, when I was young, I used to, okay, God, you listening? Got paper? Okay, here's what I need. Now it's more like, okay, how about the other way around, God? What do you got for me? You know, fill my heart. Give me peace, right? Give me joy. Give me happiness, uh, regardless of what's going on. So the farmer sheds, it's interesting the psalm makes this, the way that it describes this, right? Because the farmer sheds tears as he sows his seed. So planting seeds is done with faith and hope, Right? In the psalm, it describes our trials as the planting of seeds. Now, you think about that. Planting is where the work's done, right? You have to till the soil. You have to form it. You have to plant the seeds. Um, it's where the struggles are encountered. But with the spring rain and the snow melt, the fields are watered, and the plants start to grow. But the work's not done. You still have to till. You have to clear the weeds. You have to fertilize. You have all the stuff that you have to do. But then comes the harvest. At the end, when the sheaves of grain are full and you're gathering up from small seeds, you now have bushels of seed. And that's where the joy and the happiness is at the harvest. Thomas Spurgeon says, we shall weep amid the sunbeams, and carry home our sheaves of grain with joy. What a thought, right? Reap above the, amid the sunbeams. All right. So, how much I look forward to the day when I look upon the face of the Lord and hear those words, 
Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome to the house of the Lord. That's going to be an amazing day. I love that song, Mercy Me. You know, what are you going to do? I don't know. Am I going to be on my face just crying and joy and happiness? Or am I going to be dancing? I don't know, but I know it's going to be a good day. <laughs> so, not that I should be in a hurry, but I'm, you know, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> but doubtless, we will be singing and laughing and rejoicing when happiness and joy that we've made it were there. We just started eternity with God. So again, the question today is, which do you want to be? Do you want to be self-actualized or do you want to be self-transcendent? Do you want to live a life that's all about you or something bigger than that? Do you do the things you do because they get you what you want? Or do you do the things they do because they're beyond you? They benefit something larger and bigger than you. We have a wonderful model in God, right? Romans 5.8 said, But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gained nothing from the sacrifice of his son at the cross. Just the opposite. In his sacrifice, we gained everything. He gave his son to us because he loved us. And I can't imagine the suffering in his heart to know that he would have to sacrifice his son to redeem mankind and knew that from the very beginning of time. He carried that burden on his life that's eternal and did it anyway. It's the supreme example of self or non-self-indulgent behavior and because of it, we have eternal joy. Today we celebrate the coming of joy the celebration of the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice we are able to re reap eternal joy and happiness. Charles Spurgeon writes, let our hearts gratefully remember the loving kindness of the Lord. We were sadly low, sorely depressed, and completely past hope. But when Jehovah appeared, he did not merely lift us out of depression, he raised us into wonderful happiness. The Lord does nothing in halves. Those whom he saves from hell, he brings to heaven. He turns exile into ecstasy and banishment into bliss. Wow. So true joy and happiness are a gift from God for you to enjoy and share in this Christmas season. The Jewish people realize that true joy and happiness comes from living beyond themselves and their circumstances. And we have the same gift. Grander than anything that the world can present wrapped in pretty paper and bright red bows is the gift that we have this season. And I hope that you remember that as you walk through this Christmas season, the great gift of joy that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to finish with uh, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for all that you do for us, that you carry us through our struggles, our trials. You hold us when we weep. You listen to us when we pray. And you give us eternal joy and happiness in this day and eternally in the next. 
Again, we're thankful for all that you do. In your most holy and precious name, amen.